great events in history occur, do witnesses realize the importance? Looking back on my time now, I realize I was one of the lucky ones, privileged to tell the stories of those times. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer. Pittsburgh, late September, 1924. Normally, the newspaper writer might here insert a few lines of Ode to the West Wind and wax philosophic about autumn in the great state of Pennsylvania. In my case, perhaps adding a few lines about the start of a new season, a second springtime for the football fan. No time for such prose on this morning, though. Esteemed Pittsburgh Guardian editor Frank Delft has me fighting foot traffic for a story. Think of it as more of a mission. My informant, William Penn, Clyde the bellboy, great kid. He tells me that staying there is this, uh, camp? That's it, Walter Camp. You mean Walter Camp? Founder of modern football, Walter Camp? Yes, him. Clyde tells me he's on a tight schedule and he's leaving this city this morning. I want you to get over to that hotel and get an interview. Another day in the life of a newspaper man. Wake up and a couple hours later, you're face to face with a historical figure. Well, here goes nothing. Come here. Come here. Are you Clyde? Shh. Keep it down. No names. Now listen. The Lance awaits his snoring cabin. Sorry? The Lance awaits his snoring cabin. Anyone at the front knows this stuff. You were in the Great War? You must have been about nine years old at the time of the armistice. Shh. My part in the armistice is top secret. Once more now. The Lance. Frank Del. Shh. Of the Pittsburgh Guardian sent me here on a tip that I might meet Walter Camp. Shh! No names. Ah, there he is. Thanks, Clyde. Amateur. I am particularly interested in the lineman McGinley in Popworth, as well as Craig at the end. Excuse me, Mr. Camp? Mr. Walter Camp? And Mr. Davis, Mr. Park Davis. Good to make your acquaintance, Mr. Oh, uh, I'm Orville Mulligan with the Pittsburgh Guardian. Pittsburgh Guardian? Never heard of that one. So I was hoping to get maybe ten minutes with you, Mr. Camp, to ask a few questions. And with you too, Mr. Davis, if you're willing. Mr. Milligan, heed some advice. Have matters such as the interview you are proposing willy-nilly arranged beforehand. I apologize for the apparent spontaneity of my request, Mr. Camp, but I was sending- Mr. Milligan, the changes washing over modern journalism are morbidly fascinating at best. I find it highly paradoxical that whereas 30 years ago I was requested to speak or write at length at meticulously arranged appointment times, today any shabby-looking sort feels free to accost busy citizens in public or private to speak about trivia for 10 minutes. I'm afraid I do not currently have the time, as I am sure our driver has arrived. Don't let his foul temper get you some. Sometimes I think I haven't seen him in a truly gay mood since about aught four. He still curses Roosevelt for crimes perpetrated against Yale. Well, thank you, Mr. Davis. Do you have the time right now? I'm sorry, son. Like the man said, we're expecting our driver soon. But Mr. Camp and I are attending the game at Franklin Field on Saturday. Come over to Philadelphia. And now, I must dash. Well met, Mr. Orville Mulligan. Clyde, come here, son. I have a task for you. Def Delft wins wager on slow sportsmen. I believe I have been conned. Sorry, Hermie. Did I just cost you? You sure did. I bet precisely 7 minutes and 47 seconds before you came in that you'd arrive in under 10 minutes. I still suspect this is not fair and square. Thank you, Herman. Nice work. I'll split that dollar with you later, Marla. I'm joking, Herm. Jay, how are you? Fine, Mr. Mulligan, sir. Do you need anything? Nope. Everything's just ducky with me. Et bonjour, Mademoiselle Rousseau. Ooh la la, Monsieur Mulligan. Charmant comme toujours. Oh, he's Mr. Charmant, all right. Great! Everyone's here. Some of us more punctually than others. Hell, Herm. He was on assignment early. Covering the 
world-shaking story of the latest defeat of the Philadelphia Athletic Club, no doubt. Say, who micturated in your muesli this morning? Ugh, you used the word micturated because you think I do not know what it means. Well, I do know. I do know, and English is my fourth language. How many do you speak? Three. His French is actually quite good. Mind your business, Myrtle. This is a matter for... I hate it when she does that. Sheesh! Piercing whistle deafens three in newsroom. Thank you, Marla. Have your vocabulary measuring contest later, boys. Let's get started. Wire stories for tomorrow? In International, we've got wire on the progress of the League of Nations Disarmament Commission. For Regional, there are stories on the B&O Express collision, as well as the usual intrigues about the election. Progressives leading in Montana. Senator Brockhart says President Coolidge is a tool of Wall Street. The usual. Okay, Johnson, organize those stories and get them typed up for Marla. Right away, boss. All right. Have we got a front page? Herm. I am working on an interview with the three army pilots who circumnavigated the globe. What's the holdup on that? They are in Seattle. The army must clear my credentials. No offense, Herman, but I'm not sure that's a front pager. I agree. Flight around world, old hat since 1919. Well... Also, I have got a follow-up on the police brutality spree of last Sunday. Three police have been identified, and at least two of the beating victims are today talking to the press. What were the numbers on that? One shot, seven beaten, with handbillies and blackjacks, plus another one, the drunkard in the police station. Quelle brutalité! Absolument dégoûtant! So we have shootings, beatings, and lethal train accidents alongside political machinations? And hero pilots. We'll see on that. Marla, save us. You got anything to cut through this blood and rhetoric? Well, Herman won't like this, but we could run more on the Giants. The Washington club president is calling for Commissioner Landis' resignation. Barney Dreyfus himself is going to the Capitol to file a complaint. What? Barney went to D.C. without even telling me? I'm afraid so, Father. Barney Dreyfus? The primary stockholder in Velty and Sons? The country's top manufacturer of reproductive pianos and the Velty Philharmonic organ. But what's the connection to baseball? Barney Dreyfus is also the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates Baseball Club. He's the man who signed Hannes Wagner to his first major league contract. (sighs) Why does this newspaper even have a sports section if the baseball stories are running always on the front page? It's just the two days, Herman. Besides, it's the World Series, Herm. Already a great American tradition. I do not understand how a baseball game played between two teams from the east coast of the United States is called the World Series. Well, despite some resistance, I think we'll run with the series stories as the leads on Saturday. Run with Herm's got on Monday. Herm, whatever you want to give us is great, but remember, whatever you give us that's more than... How much space do you have? I'd say right about 43 column inches, if we run no pictures. So anything you give us more than 30 column inches is going to run on the inside pages. Orville, I want you to... uh... Go to Washington to report on the series? Not yet. We're working on that. For now, throw together a few hundred words summarizing the whole scandal. Is this the 1919 Black Sox all over again? And another couple hundred on a preview of the series itself. You're taking 13 or 14 inches away from my stories for more World Cities? You've still got 40% of the front page, including headlines, Herman. It is a rather big deal, Herman. Even the president and Mrs. Coolidge are going. Not to mention Walter Johnson pitching for the Senators, and the fascinating meeting of the minds between Bucky Harris and John McGraw, and lots more. Orville, you're over to Philadelphia for Penn, Washington, and Jefferson game. That's the Penn, Franklin, and Marshall game? Franklin and Marshall? Penn's gonna tear them up. Odds are it'll barely be worth reporting on. Then why did you set up this meeting with Walter Camp and Davis Park? That's Park Davis. Park Davis, the Philadelphia attorney? Très intéressant. Sorry, what? About 14 minutes before you returned, we got a call informing us that you'd already been booked at the Ritz-Carlton. Wow, journo scores swell freebie. Maybe I should be writing about sports. <laughs> Besides, you'll be heading back to the old alma mater. Sis boom ba and all that. I suppose. That's settled then. Great, great. 
Myrtle, what do you got? Oh, lots of bon mot to be sure. This afternoon is the matinee concert by John Philip Sousa at the Sierra Mosque. And tomorrow he'll be the guest of honor at Miss Beagle's dinner soiree at the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. I've also got the Evans divorce story in which she's charging cruelty against her CD soon to be ex-husband. The Giants' bribery piece was simplicity. The motivations of a marginal player like Jimmy O'Connell and a hanger-on coach like Cozy Dolan are irrelevant. The alleged object of the bribe, Heine Sand, went 0-3 in the game in question. The Giants won 5-1, took the pennant one game later, and O'Connell and Cozy Dolan might as well have cut their own throats with Kennesaw Landis in charge. I took my time writing the piece, not necessarily to forestall the trip until the last possible minute. At least that's what I told myself. Now leaving the Railway Pennsylvania line to Philadelphia with stops in Greensburg, Latrobe, Johnston, Altoona, Tyro, I didn't want to wait around for the express either. A longer ride to be sure, but I could get together some notes. Or so I told myself. It's been years since I was last there. What, uh, what time is it? Noon. AM or PM? Either way, it's too early. Too early, my Fanny. I have barely enough time to get ready. Your Fanny looks ready enough, again. Ah, oh, you're screwy. Not to mention classless, especially for a college boy. As much as I'd like to take you up on what you're insinuating, we've got to get to the game and get you out of here. Any minute now. Millie! Millie, you need to get out of this room, you lazy girl! I know, Mama! I'm leaving soon! I'm going to the pen game with Orville! But he left! Very early this morning, by the looks of it. I must say, that young man keeps a neat room. Everything clean, bed made as I left it the morning before. Why do you leave this door locked? It would be easier not to talk through this door. Millie! Millie! Yes, Mama, I'm listening. But I can't get myself together and pay attention to you at the same time now, can I? Millicent. Okay, she's back downstairs. Start tying up the sheets. You've got to go. Out the window again? No choice. She thinks you're already gone. Say, I pay to live here. I shouldn't have to sneak around. You pay to live in your room. If she found out, you'd go straight from her favorite tenant to hobo real quick. She's got a right to be suspicious, you know. Her mother ran this boarding house before her. She knows the kind of things that can happen here. Oh? What kind of sordid things can happen here? Very funny. I can't believe she thinks you're a nice young man. You don't think I'm nice? Not in that way. Yes, Mama! And turn down that radio. It's too loud. And here are your room keys. Enjoy your stay at the Ritz-Carlton, Mr. Mulligan. Orville Mulligan. How have you been, old chum? Freddie Carson. I see you've managed to find an unrumpled suit today. Haha, <laughs> yes. I was quite the slobby bobby. Quite the unkept shemp. Don't forget sweaty Freddy. <laughs> yes. Didn't like that one very much. However, observe the suit along with the general demeanor. Those awkward days of college, of youth, of innocence, I am far from them now. Freddy, it's been three and a half years. Three and a half prosperous years for the class of twenty, eh, my good fellow? Come to think of it, I don't think I've seen one whit of you since, you know, the incident with your parents. Busy. I've been busy. The job keeps me busy. Yes, I heard you've gone to work for one of those, uh, those, uh, 
What do you call them? Newspapers. That's it. Newspapers. Frankly speaking, I can't believe they even bother printing them anymore. In favor of what? Radio, of course. It is the 20th century and all. Same old Freddy. You've just gone from trying to hawk your father's latest whatchamacallits to selling radiophonic whoosits. Not quite. I am the new traveling account executive for URP, Ultimate Radio Productions. Ultimate? Well, it used to be Universal, but Universal Studios threatened to sue. So what do you do? Sell microphones? Microphones, transmitters, whatever a brand new station needs to increase their power to broadcast information in the modern way and the way of tomorrow. Nice pitch. Radio is the future, Orvi. Maybe, but we live in the present. I even throw in a live broadcast gratis. Imagine getting these dulcet tones for free. You're too generous for your own good. <laughs> if you say so, Orvi. Tomorrow, I'm doing the game for WGL, and after that, it's on the Washington, D.C. for the series. What about you? Is your paper sending you there? They're working on it. Splendid. Well, you let me know, and we can go down together. Plenty of room in my swell new 1924 Ford... Freddy, it's been great catching up and all, but I've got to get on... Ah, I see. Well, stay out of trouble, Orvi. And if you want to watch a master at work in comfortable climbs, come up to the grandstands. I've got a whole new broadcast booth all to myself. Good evening, Miller Bort... Orville Mulligan? Is that you? It's been years. I haven't changed that much, have I, Mrs. Miller? Oh, of course not, you silly boy. It's just that I was hardly expecting you to suddenly pop up back here. We haven't seen you since... Since graduating, yes. Well, work is keeping me good and busy. And what are you doing for work? I'm a sports writer for the Pittsburgh Guardian newspaper. A sports writer? How nice for you. I remember how much you and Millie used to enjoy the football games... Oh my, you're not looking to book a room, are you, Orville? We're full up? No. No, thank you, Mrs. Miller. I'm staying at the Ritz-Carlton. Oh, quite the successful newspaper man, then. If you like. Is Millicent... Oh no, dear. She's out with the hubby. Ah. Well, I bid you a good evening, then, Mrs. Miller. And I'll try my luck another time. Please tell Millicent I stopped by. Of course I will. Orville, is everything in order with you? Everything's just peachy, Mrs. Miller. This is Freddy Carson, voice of the URP, coming to you live on WGL with this in-state battle on the gridiron between the Franklin and Marshall College diplomats and the University of Pennsylvania Quakers. I'd gotten a pass for the sideline, perhaps by dint of my status as alumnus. That and the competition. I'm not sure if I'd have necessarily gotten such a privilege if Columbia or Cornell had been the visitors. It's a gorgeous day for football here. The mercury is topping out at just under 69 degrees. May I say, dear listeners, that such a wonderful autumn fills this Pengrad with pride. It's good to be back to this, my home away from home for four years. And down there on the sideline, I got the chance to relive my own fantastically brief if wildly unspectacular, stint with the Quakers. Hey, graduates can't join the team. Coach Young, say, I'm stunned you remember me. Of course I remember you. You were historical. Hey, Mr. Davis, come on over here. This guy's a story for your next football history book. Uh, Mr. Mulligan, glad to see you made it, and that you got the field pass. What? Your press? You're working the other side of the field, Mulligan? I'm afraid so, Coach. I'm with the Pittsburgh Guardian now. Huh, never heard of that one. Anyway, Mr. Davis... Mulligan here comes in as a freshman, maybe even skinnier than he is now, and he says he wants to play in. Coach Falwell puts him out there to scrimmage. I forget who was lined up against him. Joe Strauss. Strauss! That was it. So Strauss blows past him on the snap, and Mulligan goes down suddenly like he's been shot. Somehow he ended up with breaks in his ankle and tears in his knee. Coach let him stay on the freshman roster that year, but otherwise, that was easily the shortest football career I've ever heard of. Glad to see you're standing on your own two feet. So to speak. Ha! <laughs> Enjoy the game. And be sure to feature prominently the highly intelligent and great-looking Penn Quakers head coach. <laughs> yes, Mr. Mulligan, enjoy the game, and I've arranged a meeting between ourselves and Mr. Camp. I believe that was originally your assignment? 
Yes, sir. Very good, then. Meet us in the hotel restaurant at 7 this evening. And the first drive for the Diplomats falls as flat as this team's fortunes have been against the Quakers. The scores of the last three games between the clubs read 20 to nothing, 16 to zip, and 20 to bupkis, all in favor of Penn. The game of football is a completely different enterprise when viewed from ground level. With the ever greater emphasis on forward pass plays, more and more fans are growing accustomed to watching the movement of the ball. But a play is made or broken where the real action takes place, in the trenches. And if there is but one area in which these Quakers can be compared to our nation's top teams, it is in the line. Here are the Quakers, operating from literally within the shadow of the goalposts on second down. McGraw takes the snap, steps back, he's going to throw, and it's intercepted! Childs has it, bringing it back forward and gets stopped at the Diplomats' 12-yard line. Oh boy, Childs just stepped right out in front of that pass and massacred the early threat from Penn there. From early on, it was evident that this contest would be no blowout due not to a lack of difference in quality between the two sides, but rather the Quakers' unfortunate tendency on this day to squander multiple game-breaking opportunities. And that play goes nowhere for Troop. Hold it, the line judge is indicating a penalty. Defensive holding is the call and Franklin and Marshall drive stays alive. On that particular first quarter drive, however, the penalty yards more than equaled the amount earned and so once again, Penn possessed the ball. Penn offense now prepping up this second quarter. Cruz and Thomas have piled up 42 yards combined on this drive already. And here's Thomas again. Thomas for the eight yards to bring the ball to the 21. Early in that second quarter, the runs of Cruz and Thomas wowed the crowd. But it was Papworth and McGinley and Kaufman bullying the hapless Franklin and Marshall defensive front repeatedly until finally... Touchdown, Pennsylvania! Tommy Thomas with the plunge for the painter. Who else could it have been after a drive like that? The touchdown by Thomas ultimately made for the sole drive left unmarred by penalty or turnover for the Quakers for three quarters. The Lancaster side once more failed to cross the 50 on their possession. The Pennsylvania line would again overpower their counterparts by the tandems of Kaufman and McKinley or Papworth and Wilson with the occasional sprinkling of Clark Craig running interference on the right side. In this way, Penn had romped 56 yards from their own 32 to the Diplomats' 12. And once again, the 40,000 assembled should have expected the unexpected. A whistle after no game. And can it be that the referees are actually marking off the yards for a holding penalty? They are! And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the third holding call against this University of Pennsylvania team. And we're still in the first half. Coach Young may be a patient man, but these calls have got to be testing his limits with the referees or his linemen, possibly both. On this day, the Penn 11 would not be stopped. First, Thomas ran off tackle left. Thomas with the ball, turns the corner on the edge and, oh, he's tripped up. Luckle just fell off the block by Wilson and managed to grab Thomas's shoelace. Then Thomas ran off tackle right. It's Thomas again, this time going right. Craig runs interference, nice path cleared for Thomas, who's brought down after a gain of nine. Perhaps the multiple holding calls upset the football gods, but they were about to rend the hose of Penn asunder once more. Quakers lining up on the 14-yard line, nearly back to the spot of the penalty. McGraw back for the snap, almost in the halfback spot, and the snap is over his head! McGraw turns and falls on the ball and gets piled on back at the 20. The second guessers among the 40,000 assembled at Franklin Field were about to get a lot more fodder for their derision. Penn trying to dig their way out of yet another self-dug hole. At the 20-yard line, McGraw gets the snap, takes a step back, throws, and it's intercepted! Evander Childs has it! He's already in full stride and the chase is on! Childs at the 50 into Penn territory. Pastor Fields 10 yards back and closing. Childs to the 40, the 30, the 20, and Fields brings Childs down at the 12 yard line. Fields certainly saved the Quakers from catastrophe. What an effort shown by the speedy sophomore on that play. McGraw's second interception hammered home the feeling of deja vu that this entire game was inducing and reinducing. But Franklin and Marshall were now in a position they hadn't enjoyed since 1915, to have at least a tie at halftime against the Quakers. Sadly for them, this edition of the Diplomats was not up to the task. DeHaven's snap on first down was even more disastrous than Robinson's was for Penn. 
And Yon finally recovers it all the way back at the Franklin and Marshall 45. That's a 43-yard loss for the Diplomats, and I'm not entirely certain what it is we're seeing here today. music men hum or whistle when they feel on top of the world. And gentlemen, one of the many things that give you that tip-top feeling is the pleasure of being well-dressed. Perfect taste is a criterion, and in hats, there's nothing smarter than an atom. From stem to stern, your atom hat gives off that look of quality. You see quality in the carefully molded shape, and in the richness of the genuine all-fur felt, and in the subtle color shade. Next time you pass an atom hat store or authorized dealer... Stop in and try on an Adam. Once you see and wear an Adam hat, you'll agree that today, as before, Adam is one of America's outstanding hat values. University of Pennsylvania football team may be named for an unassuming Christian pacifist group, but in the second half, this bunch more resembled a horde of menacing warriors, at least on defense. Throughout the quarter hour after halftime, Franklin and Marshall gained nary an inch, quite literally, as the diplomats managed a meager six yards in total over the 15 minutes. Finally, in the fourth quarter, the floodgates opened to resemble the Quaker whitewashings of the immediate past. Pennsylvania will start this drive as they have the past half dozen in opposition territory. Jesse Douglas and Leonard Sorensen have come in at left halfback and fullback respectively, surely in hopes of getting something started on offense for this Quakers team. Douglas gets the ball, heads for that far left side, and wow, Greg just flattens Rich Malcolm and Douglas has room to romp. Douglas shrugs off a tackle, still on his feet, lunges forward to the eight, and again the Quakers are in scoring position. A brief test of strength between the teams ensued, a test Franklin and Marshall was destined to fail. No experimenting with forward pass plays this time. First McGraw, then Thomas crashed into the fading Diplomats' front before finally... Now it's Cruz hitting the line, and he's through! Through for the touchdown to give Penn a 13-point lead! The red and blue beast of Philadelphia was awakened and angry. The sole solace for Franklin and Marshall, the knowledge that game time was finite. Within the span remaining, the marvelous substitute Jesse Douglas notched one more Lancastrian kill. Dragon punts. He's been doing lots of that today. Douglas is back to catch it at the 17. He gets to the 22, where he's met with a crowd of diplomats. But he's away! In the open, he stiff arms Malcolm and shoves Roberts aside. One man left to beat, Childs, and he's passed him in a flash. Douglas is in for the 83-yard touchdown. Oh, what a run back! Penn has just put on a show in this fourth quarter with everything working for this outstanding group of football players. Final score, University of Pennsylvania Quakers 24, Franklin and Marshall College 0. An astounding final score, due not to the participants, but for the astounding comedy of errors produced by the victors. An incredible three interceptions thrown, 
and an unforgivable four holding calls to go with fumbles, bad snaps, and an entire quarter of play spent in enemy territory, yet resulting in zero points. The record will forever show this match as a shutout win for the Quakers, but may portend badly for when more comparable competition comes to town later this summer. Orville Mulligan, sports writer. End. I have to say, that wasn't a great season, but destroying Cornell like that was a dilly of a capper. 24 to nothing? We obliterated them. We? Are you a member of the team again? Hey, once a Quaker, always a Quaker. Except you were a Quaker for about a minute and a half. Nevertheless... Orville, what are you going to do? Well, first a little bit more of that, and then something else. No. I mean, what are you going to do after you finish your diploma? Beats me. Maybe I'll move up here, go work for Freddy's dad. You told me Freddy's father was some kind of inventor, and a hard luck one at that. I didn't say I was going to make any money, but I would have a job. Oh, you're not being serious. And you're being too serious. But fine. I was thinking about going into newspapers. Why, that's a tip-top idea, Orville. How exciting to travel around, talk to interesting people, find hidden truth, and your pieces in the Pennsylvanian are wonderful. Ah, but you might be saying that merely because you're so smitten with the writer. Smitten, little Millie. That's rather presumptuous of you, Mr. Penn Scholar. Why, next you'll be saying I'm in love. All right, how about this? That's pretty nice. No, how about this idea? I go to work for the Inquirer, maybe get on the city beat. Then in a few years, I can take some time off. Maybe write some short stories, or even a novel. A bestseller, no doubt. No doubt. And by that time, we'll be expecting our second baby. Now you've got me barefoot and pregnant? How unbelievably impertinent. Well, you have to admit I answered the question, Mrs. Mulligan. Orville, I, I don't think you should Hey, get... we both know that's how it will happen. Why don't we just make it official? Orville, you're drunk. Let's... Millicent Miller, will you make... No more talking. Let's get out of here instead. Oh! Uh, Orville! Hello! Uh, welcome to... Welcome back. Millicent Miller? Millicent Kellen, actually. Oh, right, right. I forgot. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, why don't you come in? Thank you. Ah, you've got a radio set downstairs now. Yes, Mama finally gave in on that one. If I promise to keep the volume low enough, we got a telephone installed too. Mostly in case of emergency. Ah, there you are, my darling. Good evening, sir. Thank you for stopping by the Miller Kelly boarding house. I must re- Here, this is Orville Mulligan. He's an old friend of the family's. He's just here for a visit. Orville, this is my husband, Arthur Kellen. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Mulligan. Good to meet you, too. I'll get us some drinks, Orville. You go out back and I'll meet you out there. You remember how to get there. Here you are, fresh apple cider. Hmm. Nothing stronger? If by stronger you mean alcoholic, of course not. That's illegal, Orville. <sighs> Boy, I need this. October weather. So warm during the day, so cool at night. I never know what to wear. Sorry for the lack of booze. Trust me, I miss it sometimes. It's been forever since I've really tied one on good. But Mama's been overconcerned about the police ever since Volstead, and Arthur doesn't approve of alcohol at all. Legal or not. That's hardly surprising. And what do you mean by that? Well, the guy looks like he hasn't had fun in his life. His long, long life. 
He has fun. We have fun. Arthur is such a cultured man. We're constantly going out to the theater, the opera, the museums. Museums? Huh. Let's be adults about this, please. Now, I want to hear about you. Mama says you're a newspaper man? That's right. For four years, two months and counting, I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer, Pittsburgh Guardian. Oh, sports writer. And what do you mean by that? Well, it's just... I'd always imagined you'd be doing something important. Like you'd be writing about war and diplomacy and intrigues. Like you'd be traveling the world. But I do travel. I've been all over. Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York City. And my editors told me I might be going to California for the Rose Bowl. Do you want one? I'm having another. No, merci, Sherry. Oh, I love it when you speak French. I mean, used to. Say, I've got an idea. I know you can't paint the town red exactly, so why don't we paint a little magenta? I've got a dinner appointment in a short while, but why don't I come by here at nine? We'll get a cabbie to get us to a gin mill. We'll have some drinks, dance a couple numbers, and I'll have you back here by 11. Orville, you still are so very tempting. But you can't just expect me to deceive my husband and run away with some former fling of mine. Fling? There's no need to shout, Orville. I'm sitting right here. Fling? How can you say that? What would you like me to call it, Orville? A tempestuous affair? A romance for the ages? A Romeo and Juliet story for the 20th century? Whatever you want to call it, it wasn't real life. It was a stolen year. The only thing I can tell that's stolen is your joie de vivre, your élan. Enough with the French. All right, I'll say it in English. You've become soulless. Why? Because I won't just give myself to you the minute you reappear after five years without a word? Because I'm trying to assume some responsibility before I'm too old? Because you turned your feelings off like they have a light switch. So how did you do it? Goodbye, Mrs. Kellen. Thank you for the cider. I must be going now. It's all right. I know where the back exit is. Orville? Orville? Luckily, I now had plenty of time before meeting Camp and Davis to immolate my frustration by walking briskly back to the hotel, and then around it maybe 30 or 35 times. Mr. Davis's table, sir. Thank you. Ah, Mr. Mulligan. A pleasure to see you again. Please have a seat. Mr. D, have the kitchen make us two of the usual. How do you want yours, Mr. Mulligan? Rare? Medium rare? Please don't say well done. I can't abide such an incineration. Uh, medium rare. Very good, sir. All right, but uh, where is Mr. Camp? Mr. Camp tenders his regrets. He was here briefly, but he was spirited away by some garrulous young man going on and on about some radio broadcasting, the future of the world and such. Some sort of salesman or radio newsman he was. Freddy Carson is no newsman. Carson! That was it. That was the fellow's name. Perhaps too enthusiastic for his own good, that one. I can't imagine he'll get Walter to speak on radio. I would bet he's got little money for investing. Please feel free to order anything you want. If I were a betting man, I'd wager that before the hour is up, John Bell will come around to bend my ear with his eternal belly aching about fielding Yost back in 96, and he'll pay my tab for the privilege of doing so. Surely you've heard of the Yost affair? Yes, of course. Except that we always referred to it as the Lafayette Screwjob here. Precisely what Mr. Bell would say. I tell you, as fine a coach as old Yosty was with all that point-a-minute gadgetry, he might have been an even finer lineman playing straightforward football. He was magnificent, a joy to observe, and an absolute pleasure to coach. For one game? In his youthful days, Fielding was an impetuous lad. Impetuous? Fielding Yost started the 1896 season with West Virginia. His team gets dusted three times by your Lafayette team. Let it be said, through no fault of Yost's. Then mid-season, he supposedly transfers to Lafayette just in time to give us our only loss of the season. Then he tells the newspapers he's only there to play football and goes back to West Virginia two weeks later. Like I said, he was impetuous. Were you unerring in reasoned, rational decision-making when you were a college lad? Never did anything foolish for the admiration of your peers or to earn some girl's fancy? 
Are you suggesting that Fielding Yost came to Lafayette for a woman? I'm not suggesting that at all. A man's motivations are strictly his own. I would also point out the fact that young Fielding studies continued nearly unabated. He graduated from West Virginia on time, and a few years later, embarked on his outstanding coaching career. Are you espousing the virtues of cheating, then? Certainly not. Players in any context cannot be accused of cheating rules which do not exist. Indeed, if one could play by the currently unwritten future rules, William Webb Ellis might never have thought to run with the ball, and we might not have football as we know it today. Fielding and I did what had to be done to win the game. Innovation rarely comes about within established contexts, and success comes from testing ill-defined boundaries. And are these the sorts of principles by which you practice law? Absolutely, sir. Americans get very excited about the idea of trial by jury. They love tales of showy young advocates fervently arguing a case to a stern, hanging judge. But the reality is that the truly important matters that affect the daily lives of workers and white-collar men alike are settled behind closed doors. Cases of consequence are those which result from imperfections in the law, which must first be revealed before they are smoothed over. But I'm beginning to believe this conversation isn't a matter for the sports pages of the... What was it? The Guardian. The Pittsburgh Guardian. Yes, yes, of course. The reason for my supposition is that you don't seem to be making notes of any kind. Are you one of those fortunate souls blessed with a perfect memory? That would be quite the boon in the historical profession, let me tell you. Well, if you don't mind me saying so, Mr. Davis, I'm mainly here tonight because two days ago I failed to get an interview with Mr. Camp, as you may recall. No offense, but that was the assignment from my editor. No offense taken. On the other hand, I suppose it doesn't matter much. I'm not writing about war or diplomacy or international affairs. I'd suggest that for your readers, a recounting of the weekend's Pitt Panthers football game provides a welcome respite for the soul from the weariness of war, famine, and pestilence. As for the person who recently confronted you with these ideas of the value of sport, I would advise you seek resolution from all from your past, but especially with her. How- Holding positions of authority in football has provided me with expertise in one area beyond sport, understanding the motivations of men particularly young men. Ah, excellent. And now that our wonderful dinner has arrived, mwah, compliments to the chef. Magnificent as always. Let us address one another on more informal terms and switch the topic of conversation to football. Agreed? Yes, alright. So, Park, what did you make of the holding penalties by Penn? Were all four fair calls? I personally prefer to believe that college football referees are both professional and proficient enough to do their jobs well. However, today's showing by an otherwise top-notch line was shocking. The second out came with third baseman Orville Mulligan's brilliant stab of a hard one hopper, followed by the smooth throw to first, and the Pirates need just one more out in the ninth inning to seal the 1925 World Series. Jimmy Fox is the batter. Almost timidly, he checks out that right side of the infield. Between Hannes Wagner and this kid Mulligan, the Pirates have a wall blocking off one half of the diamond. The pitch is delivered. Fox smashes it toward third and... It's off his glove into left field. Two runs score. The Pirates will get another chance at bat, but Mulligan's sure to strike out. What? Uh, who is it? Who's there? Millicent? I've changed my mind. Let's... Not be adults, at least for a few hours. Care to share this bottle with me? Yes, I would like that very much. Orville, Orville, are you there? Orville, it's an emergency. Orville, Orville. I'm here, Mrs. Miller. But you, Millicent... This telegram came. The courier said it was sent urgent. You will not explain later. You will explain now. You just better hope you're not already in the family way, young lady. We cannot afford that kind of expense. It's my ma and da. Influenza. I've got to get back. I've got to get back. All right, all right, Mama, go, run downstairs, see if you can catch that courier. If not, find Orville a ride. We've got to get him to a train. Go! Wait here, Orville. I'll get your things. We'll have you there soon. Millicent? Oh, you startled me. 
Are you trying to sneak out on me? No, but I've got to go. Soon be dawn. Plus, you were asleep and looked peaceful and not unenticing, to tell the truth. Say, Millicent, in a couple of weeks after the World Series, what do you say I take some time off and we'll have a long weekend? Or a week? Or you can come to Pittsburgh. Or we can go somewhere else completely. Have you ever been to Chicago? Don't you see? The time is over. It was just five years ago. It may as well be 500. My time with you was romantic and splendid and gay. The best left in the past. I have no regrets. But Arthur is a good man. After you disappeared, I just felt so drift and... This sophisticated, interesting man was like an anchor. Not exciting, not thrilling, but steady. Eventually I learned to love him, and I simply will not betray my husband like that. Then what was this? Resolution. Goodbye, Orville. I would so like to see you again. Sometime. But maybe under... Less fraught circumstances. Goodbye, Millicent. Sunday was a wash. I spent several hours alternately staring at the ceiling and sleeping, a timelessness that I might otherwise enjoy as the blissful privilege of the sports writer on an off day. I had the hotel wire something to the paper that I'd somehow managed to piece together while my mind was utterly elsewhere. Park Davis had left me word at the hotel. Mr. Mulligan, a heartfelt word of thanks to you for some scintillating discussion. I can only hope that your editor will find enough suitable for print. Mr. Camp sends his apologies for missing you and has assured to grant you his undivided attention on the next convenient occasion. Yours in appreciation, P.D. Seek resolution, he said. Ma, duh, how do... It's a nice night tonight. Cool. These days, it's always warm in the day and, and cool at night. After you've gone, a lot has happened. I'm a sports writer now with the Pittsburgh Guardian newspaper. The office isn't too far from here, in fact. I just saw the pen game today at Franklin Field, which you really should have come over to see, by the way. Especially you, duh. I'm sorry I haven't come sooner, but every week it's something. Two or three things. I'm always traveling around, watching sports, writing them up. I've truly been quite busy with that for years. And so again, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry for that. Oh, that girl I used to tell you about, Millicent? You remember Millicent. I know. I'm sorry. I, sh I could never convince her to come and visit us. You would have liked her. The big news is that she's married now. You'd like the husband. After all, he's more your age anyway. I'm sorry. I shouldn't joke, I suppose. Especially since the funny thing is that ever since that morning, I, I told myself it was her fault that I missed you. That I never got the chance to... Maybe I thought it was because she was too beautiful, or too much fun, or too self-centered to care about somebody's parents while in love, or... It was never her. It was me. I lost all the time because I wasn't paying attention, and it was me, and I'm sorry. Sorry, Ma. Sorry, Da. I'm sorry. And so, the stage was set for an unsuspecting but utterly willing six-year-old to enjoy the majesty of the first true World Series, right here in Pittsburgh. End Chapter 2. Well, hello there, Mr. Mulligan. Not your usual hour to haunt these offices. No, they're not. I just wasn't quite ready to go back home yet. You know, I've lived in that same apartment my entire life. You did get my story? 
I didn't hit the length, but I never did manage an interview with Walter Camp. It wasn't a problem. Out of fear the World Series might get too much front-page space, Herman must have submitted 2,000 words more than requested. Between that and more of Father's barter advertising deals, we were able to siphon a whole page of sports. Which reminds me, just a few minutes to go. I, uh, see that you've had a nightcap or three already, but stay right there and you can have one with me. Ta-da! Fresh from Frank Delft's secret stash. How do you know about that? You know, I've lived in this same building my entire life. Cheers! This is my favorite time of day. It's quiet, no telephone bells, a tiny bit of ticker tape, all the noise and wrangling and hand-wringing about deadlines, it's all over. And when things go right, Presses go on at midnight, like clockwork. When I was little, sometimes nothing but that sound would get me to sleep. I knew that noise meant father could stop fussing and worrying and running around. Now I think of it as the sound of remembering and forgetting. As a matter of record, we will remember the events of this day always, while at the same time instantly forgetting the feuds, the mistakes, the troubles that went into this edition of the paper. And then... We begin anew. That we do. This has been Orville Mulligan Sports Writer, an audio drama podcast from Number 80 Productions and the Sports History Network. Episodes script and story by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Thank you to Mr. Upton Bell for additional research in this episode. Orville Mulligan Sports Writer stars Doug Fye, Ilana Fye, and Eric Bodwell. This episode co-stars in order of appearance. Lennon DeLeon, Don MacGyver, Joe Gallegos, Gwyneth Doland, Steve Silva, Vincent Anastasio, Cademan Holland, Mindy Grossberg, and Jeanette Isaacson. Direction by Eric Bodwell with auto recording by Don MacGyver. The theme song of Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is the Dayton Triangles Rag and was arranged and performed by Bruce Smith. Additional original music provided by Mike and Gene Monroe, Silverman Sound Studios, and David Lizo of Dynamo Stairs. Please see this episode's liner notes for the full soundtrack listing. Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is produced by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Series concept by Darren Hayes. Keep your dial locked to this podcast station for the next exciting episode of Orville Mulligan Sports Writer, coming soon. Trying that again?